Before I read our text, uh, let me just remind us that we're in the book of Hebrews. We're in the beginning stages of our series on this just great, profound book. And uh, I hope that you are already getting a feel for the book and getting a feel for the rhythm of, of this letter. And the rhythm is, let's exalt Jesus and then let's hold on to him. So let's see that he's better than anything else. And now let's commit to him again and, and continue to, to follow him. So if, if you like uh, hand gestures using fingers, that's where everybody gets uncomfortable. But depends on which fingers you use. But the finger goes up to Jesus. So there's the pointing to Jesus. And then there's pointing at us. And so to Jesus, he's better. And then to us, or sometimes like this, don't you stop following him. But you follow him. So that's the rhythm of the book, is we alternate between looking at how great Jesus is and, and then pointing to us and calling us to follow him faithfully no matter what happens in our lives or in our hearts. So if you would like to stand for the reading of God's word, we're in Hebrews 3. This is on page 1002 in the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, love for you to have one of ours. Please just accept it as a gift from us and take it home, read it at home. This is Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to walk through the passage together just so we understand the flow of the argument and, and figure out some of the details that may be confusing at, at first reading. And then I'll, I'll uh, tell you how we're going to frame this, this sermon. So it starts with, Therefore. Therefore, why? why is it there? Because it connects our passage to the previous passage. Remember last week we talked about Jesus being our older brother who brings us into the family of God. So because he did that, therefore, we are to consider him. We share in that heavenly calling, being called from heaven to be part of God's family. And thus, we are now to focus on our brother Jesus, to consider him. Consider meaning uh, not consider him, him as an option, but consider him as in fixing your thoughts on him. Pay careful attention to him. Give diligent and thoughtful reflection to contemplate, to meditate. That's what that word consider means. And specifically, we are to consider him as the apostle and high priest of our confession, meaning of our faith, of our religion, of our gospel. He's both the apostle and the high priest. As an apostle, Jesus was sent from God. That's what apostle means, being sent. He was sent from God with the final word, final revelation from him. That takes us back to the first chapter of Hebrews, the first four verses. 
He's also our high priest and is a person who establishes contact between God and his people. So he speaks on behalf of God and he pulls us into a relationship with God. So we are part of God's family, part of his life. We are in a good relationship with him based on God's word in Christ and based on God's work in Christ as our high priest. Verse 2 says the readers of Hebrews were in danger of giving more glory to Moses than to Jesus. The author compares the two. First, there's the positive comparison. And please don't, don't look at this passage as somehow denigrating Moses. Moses receives a lot of honor in this passage. So the first comparison is positive. Both Jesus and Moses were faithful in accomplishing their respective missions. God's house here is God's household, God's people, God's family. And then in verses 3 and 4, there is a negative comparison between Moses and Jesus. So two analogies are given, the first one in the third and fourth verse, and then the second one in the fifth and sixth verse. First, Jesus is greater than Moses because he is the builder of the house, meaning that God created everything, Jesus is God, thus he is the creator and builder of everything. But Moses is a part of the house. Moses is in the house, but Jesus created the house. Moses is part of the family, but Jesus created the family. And then in verse 5 and 6, there's the second analogy. Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the son in the house. He is the master of the house, the owner of the household. As a servant looks to his master for direction, Moses too was looking forward to the final revelation in Christ. And so he was prophesying towards that, working towards that, expecting Jesus to come and speak on God's behalf. So those are the two negative comparisons. Positively, they were both faithful. Negatively, Jesus is greater because he is the builder of the house. Moses is part of the house. And secondly, because Jesus is the son in the house, the heir, the master of the house, and Moses is a servant in the house. And then our passage ends in the second part of of verse 6, proclaiming that we are his house. We are God's family. We are God's household. And there's a condition here. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and in our hope. Uh, it doesn't tell us, please be careful to notice that it doesn't tell us that we will be his family if we hold fast our confidence. It says that we are his family now. We are part of his household now. And one of the marks of being part of his household is holding fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope in Christ. And we'll look at it in, in greater detail as, as we go. So the passage ends as it began with an exhortation to remain focused on Jesus. First, consider him. And then lastly, hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope in him. So the book's main concern, and this passage's main concern, is do not abandon Jesus, don't turn away from him, because he is better than any other alternative. So we are to take a grip, we maintain a secure grip on this confidence that we have in Christ, and to live as part of God's household. He is our hope, he is what we glory in and boast about as we sang leading up to this passage. Now, the whole passage, I think, is held together by the metaphor of the household. 
you see it begins with brothers, which also includes sisters, brothers and sisters. Part of the heavenly calling is to bring us into God's family. It talks, the two analogies are about house, household. And then finally, it proclaims that we are his family, we are his house. So the whole thing is framed in this household metaphor. And so I took it just a step further and thought, well, what if we look at it as, as part of us operating in a family? When, you, when a child is born into a family, one of the things that they learn quickly is that there are certain rules in the house. There are house rules. And if they are to function properly in that family, they need to learn how to do that. If you're adopting a child, and some of us have adopted children, you bring them into your home and you explain to them, this is how this family works. This is how we live. These are some of the rules that you need to know. These are some of the emphases and and patterns and policies that, that we affirm as a family. And so a child learns to function in a way that that whole family functions. If the child does not function in that way, that disturbs the family. It disrupts family life. But if the child follows house rules, everything works harmoniously and well. So we're going to look at three house rules, three ways in which we are to function as part of God's household, God's family in relationship with him. If we are to function well, we need to know these three rules. So our text gives us these rules in in forms of commands. First, number one is consider Jesus. If we are to live well in God's family, we are to consider Jesus. Secondly, we are to glorify him, to give more glory to him than anyone else. And lastly, we are to hold on to Jesus, to consider him, to glorify him, and to hold on to him. First rule, consider Jesus. Like I mentioned, it doesn't mean consider Jesus as another option among many. It means to focus on him. It's not like you talking to your friend and you say, I'm having a hard time falling asleep at night. And your friend says, well, have you considered uh, drinking a cup of milk and a cookie before you you go to bed? And it's like, no, somebody has considered and follow up on that commitment. And you say, no, I've considered it. I don't don't think it's going to work for me. I'm going to do something else. This is not what the text is saying. It's not, look at all these options and consider one that works for you. No, no. It says, consider Jesus, meaning set your thoughts on him, fix your eyes on him, and you'll see a lot of this kind of language in the rest of the book. Focus on him, look at him, meditate on him, contemplate him, study him, focus on him, think about him, reflect. The point is to to focus and center on Jesus, to exert energy, to be intentional, to spend time on, I'm going to use an old word, on beholding Jesus. We are to behold Jesus if we are to function well in God's family, in his household. Someone said religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you do in your solitude? Where do your thoughts naturally go? When you have nothing else to think about, you're not at work, maybe there are no children that are vying for your attention, maybe the TV isn't on, your mind is clear. There's nothing that's demanding your attention. Where do your thoughts go to? What do you naturally think about? That defines your religion. That defines what you live for. That defines what you are considering, what you are beholding in your life. For a Christian... 
we are to cultivate this habit of contemplating Jesus. So your mind eventually will naturally go to him when you have nothing else to think about. Because your mind has been trained over sometimes years of walking with Christ to treasure him above everything else. And you have learned as you have walked with him that he is an inexhaustible treasure and that as much as you think about him, there is no limit to surprises and new knowledge and information. This is how our, our wonder is restored in Christ. We, we all begin as children uh, just full of wonder and surprise. Anything that happens is just surprising and wonderful. And then uh, the world gets a hold of you and you slowly become used to the world. You become skeptical of things. And then you meet Christ and he restores that wonder. Because any time you go to him, there is more of him. And you can never learn enough. I've never heard a Christian say, you know, I've, I've been praying and studying the Bible, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm good. I feel like I've reached that point. I feel like I've sufficiently, uh, I've sufficiently reflected on Christ. I feel like I've spent enough time contemplating. I feel like I've learned enough. That doesn't happen. There's always more. There's always more. The same passages speak differently to you. The same prayers mean different things. The same attributes of Christ become more meaningful with time. It's that beholding of Jesus that marks us as part of God's family. If you want to open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. That, that gives us, in a, in a very concise form, a definition of what it means to be sanctified and some of you are saying, here we go with the religious language. What does that mean, sanctified? You say that, but what does it mean? It simply means to become more holy with time. It means to become more like God. It means to be changed, to become someone that God has envisioned you to be all along. We're being changed by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit's ministry. So let's, let me read this. This is, again, a comparison with Moses. So a coincidence, maybe. Uh, comparison with Moses in 2 Corinthians 3. Unlike Moses who had to wear a veil when he had experienced God's glory, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how does the Spirit change us? How do we grow as believers? We do that by beholding His glory. By beholding Jesus, by looking at Him, by experiencing Him, we're being transformed into different kinds of people. This is, this is how sanctification works. Over time, the more you are connected with Jesus, the more like Him you become. As we look at God, we're being transformed. Now, we'll return to this concept of glory in a few minutes. But for now, I, I, I like to develop this idea of considering or beholding Jesus. We need to learn how to do that. So how do we, practically speaking, how do we behold Jesus and consider Him? Well, our text gives us three aspects of considering Jesus or beholding Him. They correspond to three main disciplines of the Christian life. Not surprisingly, those disciplines come from Scripture. So look at verse 1, where it tells us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the call is to consider him, to look at him, to behold him. 
But we look at him as our apostle and as our high priest. An apostle speaks on God's behalf. The high priest speaks on our behalf to God. Jesus is both. Jesus speaks to us from God, and he speaks to God on our behalf. He's in between. And so how do we behold him as one who speaks to us and as one who speaks on our behalf to God? There are the two major disciplines of the Christian life. It's hearing his voice, right? And it's speaking to him. It's Bible reading and prayer. So as we consider Jesus, how do you practically do that? You read the book that he wrote, and you speak to him on the basis of what you've read, because he makes sure that your words get to God. Jesus comes to us with a message from God, so we need to hear it. That message is contained in the scriptures, and so when you read the Bible, you hear Jesus' voice, you behold him, you learn about him, you contemplate him, and you meditate on what he's done for us, and then you return that to God in prayer by speaking to him in Jesus' name. As our apostle, Jesus reveals God to us. He brings us God's word. And so a practical application here is to devote yourself to this book. Very simple. And I feel like most Sundays you're probably going to hear this call to devote yourself to the book because this is essential for the Christian life, for the life with God, for the life in God's family. We are to study it, to read it, to memorize it, to hear it, and to meditate on it. As our apostle, Jesus reveals God to us through his book. As our high priest, Jesus restores our relationship with God. And so now we can talk with God. There are no longer any barriers between us and God. And so when we... Do not pray. Uh, so I, I want you to hear me on that, and I, I want to challenge you and, and see if you, you will accept this. If we do not pray, we reject Christ's ministry as our high priest. We may not do that consciously, but functionally, if I don't pray, what I'm saying is I don't need or I don't have a high priest like Jesus. Because the point of the high priestly ministry is to connect me to God. And when I refuse to be connected to God, I'm saying it doesn't matter to me that Jesus is my high priest. His ministry is not effective in my life. He is not sufficient for me. Now, I understand that most of us are not consciously putting these things into words when we simply don't pray. But I want you to know that that is exactly what's happening. Functionally, we are refusing to accept Jesus' priestly ministry when we do not pray. And so an application for us would be to commit ourselves to prayer. And as we pray, we pray in His name. Why is it that most prayers you would hear at Chatham and, and almost any evangelical church are going to end with, in Jesus' name? Well, some of it is just, that's just how we're trained. You know, you hear that and you learn to pray from other people. But, but some of it, if done consciously, is, is, is very biblical and very important. When I'm offering a prayer to God, I'm saying, I don't know if this is going to get to you. 
I don't know if I'm even praying right. I don't know if I have a right to be in your presence to pray and to speak to you. So I am calling on Jesus to make this happen. So I'm praying in Jesus' name, on His authority. I'm praying based on what He has done for me on the cross, removing my guilt and thus removing a barrier between me and God. In His empty tomb, giving me a victory and a new relationship, new life with God. And so when I come to God, I pray in Jesus' name, meaning that because of Jesus, this prayer will be heard by God. That's how we are to pray. This is how we are to consider Jesus. We consider Him by reading His book and then praying in His name. Is that a pattern of your life? Do you intentionally, putting an effort effort into it, setting time aside, go to the book and go to God in prayer in the name of Jesus? And the third aspect of considering Jesus, something that is implicit in this passage and yet very clear, and that is this, the value of Christian community. When I've been saying household of God, I'm, I primarily mean it as me belonging to God and becoming part of His family, me being accepted with God, an individual being brought into God's family as an adopted child to be in a relationship with Him through Christ. But there's another aspect to that. There are many children who have been brought into that home. There are many children who have been adopted into God's family. And so we are all together considering Jesus. This is not just an individual pursuit. And I do not want you to walk away this morning and say, okay, my application is I need to read the Bible and I need to pray and that's it. No, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, but you need to be with other people. You need to be part of a community of Christ. You need to be part of a covenant community. This is the baby dedication idea, right? We're bringing them into this community. Yes, we hope they read their Bibles. We hope that they will learn to pray. But we also hope that they will become a real part of this church. Bringing their gifts, learning from other people, teaching other people, growing in Christ, experiencing things together as part of this group of people. Community of church is essential for spiritual growth. You can't be part of God's household just on your own individually. It just cannot happen. And if you read the New Testament, there's not even an idea of an individual Christian. It's amazing. There's no idea that somebody could just be a Christian apart from God's people. And so that's a, that's a new Western change that has is, that is come into the church of saying just, just your personal Savior, just your personal relationship. Now, that's important. Of course that's true. But not just. Personal and corporate, yes. He is my Savior, but He is our Savior. When we pray... We pray, Our Father in Heaven. So that communal aspect is essential. Christian life is a life of contemplation. As children in God's family, we're called to fix our thoughts on Jesus, our Apostle, our High Priest, our Master, our Redeemer, our Brother. And we do that by intentionally cultivating these three disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, and life in community with other disciples. So how are you doing with that? You know, in your sermon notes, every week we print and there's a, there's a portion that is left for application. Uh, I try to give application throughout the sermon, but I want us to reflect on what we hear from God from His Word and walk away with something that we can do in our lives. So I encourage us to write it down. 
God is speaking to you this morning and He's telling you, okay, address this issue, grow in this area, change that relationship, write it down. And say, okay, under God, I am committing to take that step of obedience. He's spoken to me. I want to consider Jesus by pursuing Him in this way. So what's lacking in your life? Which of the three disciplines that I've mentioned, engagement with Scripture, prayer, or church community, what is lacking in your life? Please take it seriously. Second house rules is to glorify Jesus. We are to consider Him. Secondly, we are to glorify Him. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, Moses was very important to the, the audience that this letter is written to. Now, imagine in the history of Israel, just imagine what Moses means. He is the person, the leader, who brings them out of slavery, out of Egypt, where they're dying, right? He takes them out. He leads them in the wilderness, and finally he brings them, though he cannot himself enter, but he brings them into the land. He gives them the law from God. Now, Moses single-handedly defined Israel as a nation. It's, It's an amazing thing. The kind of leadership that he exerted over his people. I mean, this is on the level of George Washington. This is, this is that kind of level. Where everybody in Israel would say, well, of course, of course Moses is worthy of all sorts of glory and honor. And so it's not surprising that these Jewish Christians are struggling with placing Moses in the proper context. And so they are tempted to give him too much glory. Now, the argument here isn't that he doesn't deserve any glory or any honor. He does. But he doesn't deserve as much as Jesus So. Moses has some glory, but Jesus has more glory. Now, this is an illustration that I have to hopefully compare how it works. Imagine you go to a a film festival. Does anybody go to film festivals anymore in the age of Netflix and the Hulu? Uh, You go to to a film festival, and there's a, a, a quiet little panel of indie movie stars and they're sitting at a table and you know and there's 15 20 people there and, and they're talking about the craft of acting and the kind of movies the kind of art that they're producing and there's mild interest in that and then tom cruise walks into the room right and everybody turns because he's a movie star everybody turns and the journalists are all of a sudden are not interested in the event they're covering they want to get a quote from him That's glory. It's more glory. When somebody glorious walks into the room, he or she demands attention. Everything else is no longer important. But that person now becomes the center of attention. So Moses is in the room. Moses is important. But Jesus comes in. Yeah, everybody needs to be looking at him. Consider him. Fix your thoughts on him doesn't diminish Moses, but it exalts Jesus. It's a different level of glory. So why does Jesus have more glory than Moses? So two analogies that you saw in our text earlier here. Moses is part of God's house, but Jesus built it. Moses is part of God's creation, but Jesus is the creator. Please notice how, how the author ascribes divinity to Jesus, full divinity to Jesus. Here's the argument. 
And this is, uh, if you look at verse 3 and, and 4. Verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. That's, this is a logical progression. Moses is not as glorious as Jesus because he's part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. Everything has been built by someone, but God built it all. Thus, Jesus is God. Jesus is the builder of everything, including Moses, including Moses' ministry, including the nation of Israel. And so Jesus deserves more glory because he is God. He's the creator. I, I think of this illustration. I heard uh, Ravi Zacharias use that in his sermon. I think it's in his book, The Grand Weaver, I think is the book is called. Uh, it's this idea of how God designs our lives, how God is working in the circumstances of our lives to achieve his purposes. And, and Ravi Zacharias was sharing this, uh, this example from India where he comes from. He says there's a place in India where the most beautiful saris come from, saris that Indian dress. And especially at an Indian wedding, you have these this glorious saris that women put on. Uh, they're just, just spectacular. And he says this is the place in India, the particular locale where, where the most beautiful saris are made. And he says when you go in there, you will see how they're made. And he says it's a father-son operation. You have the son sitting kind of on the level below the father. So there's kind of a two-level uh, workstation. And all the son does is he just, just moves the shuttle back and forth. That's all he does. But the father who sits above him actually weaves all of that into the pattern that he wants. So is the son important? Yes. In that operation, the son is important. He's producing something. He's, he's, he's using effort to make a sari. But it's the father who determines how it all comes together. And the end product is the Father's work. Now, this is our lives, right? Is it important to move the shuttle back and forth? Yes. Is it important to, to be responsible for your actions? Absolutely. Is it important to do the kind of ministry that God has given you? Yes. But who is weaving the design? Who's making it happen? Who is responsible for the end result? It's, it's God. And Jesus, as God, as, as creator and redeemer, takes responsibility for the end product. And so is Moses important? Yes. When he gave the law to the people, that was important. But who is more important than, than, than Moses? God, whose character that law reflects. And so Moses doesn't get as much glory as Jesus does. The second reason why Jesus is, is more glorious than Moses is because Moses is a servant in God's house, but Jesus is a son. Moses did a job that God gave him to do. He did it well. He was faithful. But the house and the family belong to Jesus. He is a son. He is he's the heir. He's the master of the house. And so you cannot compare a servant to a son. And what this passage tells us is that we cannot put Jesus on the same level as other characters in the Bible. You can't be thinking... Adam and Eve, right? Abraham, Moses, Esther, Daniel, and Jesus. And then Paul and others. That, that is not how we can think about Scripture. That's not how it works. And yet, in most children's Bibles, this is how it goes. You don't hear about Jesus until you get to the part of the, of the children's Bible that talks specifically 
about him. Now, you hear a lot about the animals, but know Jesus until you, you get to the New Testament. I, I had a friend in Chicago who, she grew up in a, in a strong Christian home in the church. And I remember she told me one time, she's, she says, I love the Bible, love the Old Testament, but I'm not that comfortable with Jesus. And I'm thinking, <laughs> who taught you? Who taught you? <laughs> How can it be that you can love the Bible and you can love the Old Testament and you can identify with all those stories and laws and prophecies of the Old Testament, but you are not comfortable with Jesus? How can that be? The whole book is about Him. That means you have not been reading the book right. There are so many of us, Bible-believing, church-going people, for whom Jesus remains a necessary nuisance. A necessary nuisance. We need Him for salvation. Right? So when we evangelize, we're going to pull Him out. We need Him for that. But we don't have to consider Him. We don't have to meditate on Him. We can focus on all sorts of other characters in the Bible. And sometimes, maybe weeks go by and I don't really think about Jesus. But I'm deep in the study of this book. How can that be? For many Christians, Jesus is just another character in the Bible. In fact, many of us are not all that comfortable with His categorical claims on our wealth and His call to suffering. So maybe... Maybe I should just stick with studying Abraham or someone else like that. Someone a little more approachable, a little bit more on my level. Somebody I can emulate to a certain degree of, of comfort. Or David or Esther or Moses. They seem a little better role models for me. That is how many Christians think. And it is absolutely unacceptable. Because Jesus is more glorious than any one of them. And this is the Hebrews point. He's saying, yeah, I know you guys love Moses. I know you love the Old Testament law. I know you love the covenant and you love the temple and the sacrifices. And he's not denigrating any of that. But he's saying, but you can't take that without Jesus. You cannot separate that from him. You can't go back to them because you know him now. So consider him. Glorify him. He has more glory than anyone else. So if you're struggling with this, for whatever reason, please heed the call of Hebrews. Consider Jesus as one completely different from all the other characters in the Bible. He's behind all of them. He's the one that they point to. He's the one that they dream about. He's the one who governs their lives. Every time you open this book, the goal is to learn more about Jesus. Which is why this is an essential discipline in considering Jesus. You go to this book and your goal is to learn more about Jesus. Yes, you'll learn more about Moses as well. But the point is to learn more about Jesus. Jesus is the principal actor in God's redemptive story. There's no part of the story in Scripture that doesn't have Jesus in it. There's no passage that doesn't in some way refer to him directly or indirectly. And if you're not convinced of that, and I know, and I, I try to push it every time I get a chance to speak about this, but if you're not convinced yet, let me press you to look at the book of Hebrews itself 
and ask yourself, how is the author of Hebrews reading the Old Testament? Is he bringing up any passages from the Old Testament that, that don't have something to do with Jesus? He's going to the Psalms, he's going to the law, he's going to the prophets, but every passage he brings up speaks about Jesus. Maybe some of the passages that if you read them in Isaiah or in the Psalms, you would say, how? But having Hebrews, you say, oh, okay, I get it. It is about Jesus. To glorify Jesus is not just about reading the Bible in a way that keeps him central and sees him really for who he is, the creator and redeemer of the world. But it is also to live in a way that glorifies him. Let me put it in, in these terms. We must be impressed with Jesus more than we are impressed with anything or anyone else. So let's ask ourselves, honestly, openly, right? We're saying, am I impressed with Jesus more than I'm impressed with what? Remember in that moment, solit moment of solitude, your, your mind drifts, your thoughts go to what? Once you find that, and it could be good things like ministry and family. But once you find that object of your attention, of your devotion, you ask yourself, am I more impressed with that than I am impressed with Jesus? This is a dangerous question to ask because of what follows typically is repentance. And so you just fall on your face and you say, Jesus, you are better. I've drifted I've made this thing or that person more important than you, and I, and I felt more impressed by them, but there's nothing more impressive than you. And so you turn around and you say, I'm going to consider Jesus again. Read his book, pray, go to church, get involved in a church community, and be impressed with him again. Preachers just preach, you know. But Jesus is, is the word. Can't be impressed with preachers. Artists create, but, but he's beauty himself. And so, yes, we may be impressed with a piece of art, but you cannot be impressed with a piece of art more than you are impressed with beauty itself. Leaders make decisions, but Jesus is wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. Architects design, but Jesus is the creator. Builders and architects, we just, we just take things that are given to us and we rearrange them. But who makes the stuff? Jesus makes the stuff. Counselors and doctors and nurses heal. But it is Jesus who is our peace, our shalom. Singers and musicians compose songs and they sing, but the whole creation sings Jesus. He, he's the song of this creation. Are you impressed with Jesus? We live, but He is life. We love, but He is love. We learn, but He is truth. We worship, even this morning, we've gathered to worship, but He is the object of our worship. So be impressed with Him, glorify Him. And finally, the last house rule, we are to hold on to Jesus or hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. This is the last part of verse 6. Now, there is a progression as, as you process that and, and hopefully apply it in your life. 
there's a progression. You start by considering Him. You start by focusing on Him and saying, Who is Jesus? What has He done? What is He like? As you look at Him, as you spend time with Him, as you meditate on who He is, you are inevitably become impressed with Him. And so now He is more glorious to you than any other thing or person. As He becomes more glorious, you want to hold on to Him. So you consider, you see His glory, and then you want to hold on to Him. You maintain that firm grip on Him. Uh, this phrase, I'm going to try to explain this a little bit, because I, at first when I read it, I was like, what is this? Confidence, boast, and hope. It's just like a bunch of words thrown together. What, what is He getting at? So we are to hold fast or hold on to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what does that mean? Let me rephrase this. We are to hold fast to our confidence and to our boasting. So we are to maintain our confidence. We are to maintain our boasting. We are to keep being confident. We are to keep boasting. Now the question is, in what? What are we confident in? What are we boasting in? And the answer from the text is our hope. So our hope is the object of our boasting. Our hope is what we are to be confident in continuously being part of God's family. What is that hope in? That hope is in Jesus, our apostle and high priest. So here's, here's the logic of it. I am to remain confident. I am to remain boastful of what I have in Jesus. That is what keeps me in God's household. It's very clear. I am part of God's house. You are part of God's house. You're part of his family. If you continue to boast, if you continue to be confident in what we have in Jesus, in our hope in Jesus. We consider Jesus. We find him to be glorious. We discover that it is he who brings us into God's family through his work on the cross and in the empty tomb. We place our hope in Him, that's conversion. We trust Him, and then the call is to rest in Him and even to boast in Him. Now, are you getting the, the logic of this? He's saying you are God's family, and you are to continue to boast. You are to continue to place your hope in Jesus, to rest in what He has done to bring you and keep you into God's family. So the call is to trust Him. The call is to rest in Him, to believe that He has done everything necessary for us to become and remain part of God's family. We function as part of God's household utterly by grace. As much as this feels like you do that if you want to remain in God's family, it has that feel. And that's, that's a Hebrew's tension. Because it pushes us to commit. It pushes us to keep that resolve to follow Jesus. And yet, the underlying reality of that is, all you're doing is you're boasting in God's grace. So what he's saying is, the call is, keep bragging in God's grace to you in Jesus. That is how you came into this house. This is, this is how you're going to be comfortable in this house. If you keep bragging about God's grace for you in Christ. There's an audacity of grace here. Audacity of grace that defines a Christian. I, I love the combination of humility. I do not belong in this house on my own. This is not my family. This is not my God because I've offended him. I broke up the relationship with him. 
And yet, at the same time, I can just as honestly say, I belong here. This is my family. This is my God. I have a relationship with him. Why? Because of grace in Jesus. Because Jesus did something to bring me into this home. And so as much as I can never say, I belong here because of me, I can always say, I belong here because of Christ. That's the confidence and boasting in our hope. Practically, it looks like us saying, come into God in prayer, and you're saying, I belong here because of Christ, so I'm praying in Christ's name. You open the Bible and you say, this is God's word to me, and Christ brought it to me, the final revelation. I have the Holy Spirit not because I am great, but because Jesus gave me the Holy Spirit to make me different. And so as we process these things, the call here is to hold on to that. Hold on to our hope in Christ, which is really based on His grace. I love the audacity, the confidence, the almost arrogance in, 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 the right, in the right way, almost pride in the right way. But pride in whom? Not in me, but in Jesus. You know, we are called to boast in the Lord. How do we do that? You know, many of us are very uncomfortable with that idea of somehow being proud, somehow being arrogant almost, bragging and boasting in the Lord. But there's nothing wrong about it if your boasting is in Christ. If you're saying, I belong in this family because of what Christ has done for me. I have rights. I have privileges with God. Every spiritual blessing has been given to me through Christ. I have that through Him because of Him, because of what He's done for me. Dying on the cross for my sins, being raised for my justification. So we are to feel utterly secure to the point of bragging that we belong in God's family through Jesus. So let me finish by addressing those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. What do we walk away with from this message? To those who are not yet Christians, maybe you're here for whatever reason you're here, and we are ecstatic that you're here. We love that you're here. We want you to hear this. We want you to experience our community If you're not a believer, the call to you is to recognize that Jesus has done everything to restore your relationship with God. He died for your sins, which means there's no guilt between you and God anymore. He was raised from the dead to give you a new life, a new life with God, a new life with His people. And so through His death and resurrection, He proves to you that He loves you. He proves to you that He came for you to bring you into His family. So if you are not a believer, will you accept that grace? Will you become one of the people that will brag about that to others? Will you, for the first time, grab hold of Him, never to let Him go again? I hope that when we take communion in a couple of seconds here, that you don't succumb to peer pressure and go through the motions that everybody is going through. But if you're not a believer, take Jesus. Go to Him. Grab hold of Him. Find that confidence and boasting in Him. Consider Him. Find Him more glorious and hold on to Him. And if you are a Christian, my call to you is to continue to place your hope in Christ. John Piper said that becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen exactly the same way. 
being a Christian and becoming a Christian happen by hoping in Jesus? Do you put your confidence in Jesus that makes you a Christian and that keeps you a Christian? Again, don't lose grace in here. This is not our work. We don't keep ourselves. But we are kept by trusting in Him and continuing to trust in Him.